Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. is Democracy Now! We have now some personal news to share with you this morning. Our boss, Rupert Murdoch, is transitioning from chair of our parent company, Fox Corporation. Rupert Murdoch stepping down as head of his right-wing media empire. We'll talk to the head of Media Matters, who says Murdoch's legacy is one of deceit, destruction, and death. Then to Israel. Even where we have some differences, my commitment to Israel, as you know, is ironclad. I, uh, I think without Israel, there's not a Jew in the world that's secure. I think Israel is essential. President Biden's invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the White House after the two met on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Critics say Biden's embracing Israel's apartheid system. Plus, we speak to Congressmember Ro Khanna as Republican infighting could soon lead to a government shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's warned the far-right lawmakers want to burn the whole place down. Plus, we'll speak with Rokana about the UAW strike as the auto workers threaten to expand their strike today against the big three. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's dismissed lawmakers for an extended weekend after a handful of Republican hardliners rebelled and blocked an $886 billion Pentagon spending bill. McCarthy blamed members of his caucus for wanting to burn the whole place down, he said. Their defection makes it increasingly likely the federal government will shut down October 1st when funding for federal agencies expires. On Thursday, Democratic Congressmember Ilhan Omar blasted Republicans for demanding massive cuts to social programs. Now they launch some of the most radical cuts to health care, to housing assistance, to food assistance, to the postal office, and nearly every program under the sun, all while doing nothing to rein in our nearly trillion-dollar Pentagon budget or the trillions they have handed out to millionaires and billionaires through the Trump tax cuts. Meanwhile, the Pentagon says it'll exempt its Ukraine operations from any government shutdown to allow it to continue training soldiers and shipping arms to Kyiv. We'll have more on the congressional budget fight later in the broadcast with California Congressmember Rohana. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's arrived in Canada after wrapping up a visit to Washington, D.C., where he met Thursday with U.S. lawmakers, military leaders and President Joe Biden. During a speech at the National Archives, Zelensky thanked the U.S. for the $113 billion in aid to Ukraine approved by Congress, saying the money's helping to prevent a wider war in Europe. If we fall, half of Europe would again be in danger of being in Moscow's sphere of influence. But American investment in Ukrainian security and global protection of freedom is working 100% every cent. 
Meanwhile, Poland's prime minister says he will no longer send new arms to Ukraine and will instead focus on arming Poland with modern weaponry. The move comes amidst a trade dispute that's seen Poland ban exports of imports of Ukrainian grain and other food products. In a historic victory for indigenous communities, Brazil's Supreme Court has blocked efforts led by agribusiness-backed lawmakers to enforce a time limit for making claims to ancestral territory. The case argued indigenous groups were only entitled to land that they physically occupied when the 1988 Brazilian Constitution was signed. Many indigenous communities were expelled from their ancestral territory over the course of decades, including during the military dictatorship. Nine of the 11 justices sided with indigenous people who gathered outside the Supreme Court in Brasilia Thursday in an emotional celebration following news of the ruling. Many wept with joy. Others danced. We're getting emotional. We're happy and we cry because we know that it's only with demarcated territory, with protected indigenous territory, that we'll be able to stop climate change from happening and preserve our biome. We are responsible for it. In Guatemala, demonstrations have continued nationwide in support of progressive President-elect Bernardo Arevalo and his Semilla political party as prosecutors seek to derail the results of August runoff election and prevent Arevalo from taking office in January. Protesters are demanding the resignation of corrupt prosecutors backed by Guatemala's right-wing business and political elite who've launched several investigations against Arevalo and Semilla over alleged election fraud and irregularities in the party registration. International observers have said there's no evidence backing these claims. Arevalo rallied supporters outside the Supreme Court in Guatemala City earlier this week. Citizenship is exercised not only every four years when the vote is cast, but also when the institutions ask us to mobilize to defend democracy. And today we're here in an act of defense of democracy. On Tuesday, thousands of indigenous leaders took to the streets of Guatemala, blocking major highways. In New York, Brazilian President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva warned in his U.N. General Assembly address about the prospect of a coup unfolding in Guatemala. In Guatemala, there is a risk of a coup, which would impede the inauguration of the winner of democratic elections. In immigration news, the Biden administration announced Wednesday it's granting work permits and temporary protection from deportation to nearly half a million Venezuelans. Migrants from Venezuela who are already in the U.S. as of July 31st can apply for temporary protected status. The relief will last for 18 months and comes after a massive push led by immigration rights activists demanding work authorization for the tens of thousands of migrants who've arrived at the U.S. in recent months. In related news, a three-year-old migrant child has died after being swept away by the current of the Rio Grande along the Texas border with Mexico. Texas officials also recovered another migrant presumed to have died after drowning in the river. Both bodies were found near the border buoys installed by Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott to block migrants from crossing into the U.S. Earlier this month, a federal judge ordered Abbott to remove his dangerous floating border barrier. The ruling was temporary paused after Texas filed an appeal. India 
has suspended visas for Canadian nationals after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau Monday claimed the Indian government was involved in the June assassination of a Sikh community leader and a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijjar, in British Columbia. India rejected the claim and accused Canada of harboring Sikh separatist terrorists. Both countries have expelled diplomats. The AP's reporting Canada's claim is based on surveillance of Indian diplomats in Canada and intelligence provided by an unnamed ally from the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, which includes the U.S., U.K., Australia and New Zealand. Billionaire media tycoon Rupert Murdoch announced Thursday he's stepping down as chair of News Corp and Fox Corp and will put his son Lachlan Murdoch in charge. Murdoch's vast media holdings include the right-wing TV network Fox News, which has been plagued by a series of scandals around sexual harassment, as well as reporting lies, including around Trump's loss in the 2020 election. We'll have more on Rupert Murdoch's media empire after headlines. In France... Police released journalist Ariane Levelleux Thursday, two days after her home was raided and she was arrested over her reporting. Writing for the website Disclose, Lavrieux reported on a leak that said French intelligence was used by Egyptian forces to target smugglers along the Libya-Egypt border, resulting in the killing of civilians. The reporting says French forces were complicit in at least 19 bombings against smugglers between 2016 and 18. She also wrote about various arms trades in Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Russia. Amnesty International chief Agnès Kayamard said, quote, it is deeply chilling that almost two years after the revelations that France was allegedly complicit in extrajudicial executions of hundreds of people in Egypt, it's the journalist who exposed these atrocities that's being targeted rather than those responsible, she said. On Thursday, Lavrieux spoke at a news conference at the Paris Office of Reporters Without Borders shortly after her release. She deplored the lack of political support for her case and called on parliamentarians to investigate abuses by French intelligence services. If all these people remain silent, it is very disquieting for our democracy. If those in power do not ask questions, democracy dies in darkness. As the famous slogan goes, this is a very political, essentially democratic matter. In Louisiana, a new lawsuit accuses officers in a street crimes unit of the Baton Rouge Police Department of unlawfully arresting people and torturing them in an unmarked warehouse dubbed the Brave Cave. Turnell Brown, a 47-year-old grandmother, says she was arrested at a traffic stop in June after officers falsely told her it was illegal to store her prescription medications in a single bottle. Rather than being processed at the local jail, Brown alleges she was taken to the warehouse where she was stripped naked and subjected to invasive body cavity searches. She was released without charge about two hours later. This is the second federal lawsuit against the Baton Rouge police. In another suit, 21-year-old Jeremy Lee, who is black, alleges officers strip-searched him in public before bringing him to the warehouse where he was brutally beaten by officers who turned off their body cameras. 
Former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson has accused Rudy Giuliani of groping her on January 6, 2021, shortly before the Capitol insurrection. In her new book, Enough, Hutchinson described Giuliani slipping his hand, quote, under my blazer, then my skirt, unquote, while they were backstage at Trump's speech. A Giuliani spokesperson denied the claim. Meanwhile, the lawyer who'd been leading Giuliani's defense in his litany of legal challenges sued Giuliani for one $1.3 million in unpaid fees he owes his law firm. This comes as Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss said in a court filing Thursday, Giuliani has failed to comply with a federal judge's order to turn over evidence and pay $89,000 in legal fees as part of their defamation case. And in labor news, the United Auto Workers Union says it's escalating its stand-up strike against the big three U.S. automakers today unless significant progress is made at the bargaining table. UAW President Sean Fain will announce the auto plants that will join workers on the picket line at GM, Ford and Stellantis. Amid soaring profits and CEO compensation, workers are demanding better wages, an end to tiered pay, cost of living adjustments, a return to defined benefit pensions and a 32-hour work week. Separately, UAW workers in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, have launched a strike at their plant, which produces parts for Mercedes-Benz. Wages because of inflation right now. The wages that we have is not going to, it's not meeting our needs. And plus, the, um, the benefit package they offer us is too high. We can't afford it. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Media billionaire Rupert Murdoch made a surprise announcement Thursday that he's stepping down from his media empire and will put his son Lachlan Murdoch in charge. Rupert Murdoch is 92 years old. In November, he will transition to become chairman emeritus of both Fox Corporation and News Corporation. Lachlan Murdoch will become chairman of News Corporation, continue his position as chief executive officer of Fox Corp. Murdoch's media empire began in Australia in 1952 and quickly expanded. In 1969, he bought one of Britain's oldest newspapers, News of the World, which he then shut down in 2011 after the tabloid was accused of eavesdropping on phone calls and hacking voicemails of missing children, families of soldiers killed in action, and others. This is Rupert Murdoch testifying before the British Parliament's Culture and Media Committee in 2011, questioned by Labour MP Tom Watson. Mr. Murdoch, at what point did you find out that criminality was endemic at News of the World? Endemic is a very hard, a very wide-ranging word, and I also had to be extremely careful not to prejudice the course of justice which is taking place now. Uh, that that has been disclosed, uh, I became aware as it became apparent. The British Parliamentary Committee concluded Rupert Murdoch and his son James Murdoch showed, quote, willful blindness about the scale of phone hacking at News of the World. The next year, a parliamentary report concluded Rupert, Mar <laughs> Rupert Murdoch was, quote, not a fit person to run a major international media company. This is British Labour MP Tom Watson in 2012. And everybody in the world knows who is responsible for the wrongdoing of News Corp. Rupert Murdoch. More than any individual alive, he is to blame. Morally, the deeds are his. 
He paid the piper and he called the tune. It is his company, his culture, his people, his business, his failures, his lies, his crimes, the price of profits and his power. That was more than a decade ago. Well, here in the United States, critics say the right-wing TV network Fox News under Rupert Murdoch has long served as the communications arm of the Republican Party. In the past decade, it's also faced a series of sexual harassment scandals. In 2016, the chair and CEO of Fox News, Roger Ailes, was forced to resign amidst multiple accusations of sexual harassment, along with primetime host Bill O'Reilly. This was Rupert Murdoch's response in 2017 on the Sky News channel. Which he founded. How harmful has the whole raft of allegations about sexual harassment at Fox News been for the business? Has oh, that's all nonsense. Um, there was a problem uh, with our chief executive, um, sort of uh, uh, over the years, but isolated instance. As soon as we investigated, he was out of the place in hours, well, three or four days. Um, and there's been nothing else since then. Rupert Murdoch's resignation comes after Fox News settled a defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems over 2020 election lies for nearly $800 million. Fox News is still facing a $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit from Smartmatic. Michael Wolff, author of the new book, The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty, reports Murdoch was, quote, frothing at the mouth in anger at Donald Trump. From where we're joined by Angelo Carasone, president of Media Matters. He's closely followed Murdoch and released a statement that Murdoch's legacy of one of deceit, destruction and death. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Angelo, it's great to have you with us. Can you respond to the surprise announcement yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to keep and the, the two things that I felt immediately was one to make sure that, you know, his legacy doesn't get sugarcoated, that we are really cognizant of the scale of damage that he's created. It's it's not just the culture of corruption and lies that that, that Tom Watson was quoted at, uh, sort of referencing, but also the long tail of some of his active campaigns, in particular against climate change. I don't think there's a single person or entity in the world that has done more to promote climate denialism and undermine the efforts to, to combat that threat. And that will last for for, for generations. Uh, and Rupert Murdoch, given the scale of his properties, was significant there. So that was the first thing, was to make sure that the legacy doesn't get sugarcoated. And then the second was to sort of ring the alarm bell, which is that Lachlan Murdoch will actually be a lot worse in many respects. So things in some ways will get both more chaotic and more extreme. So, well, let's talk about whether, in fact, Rupert Murdoch is stepping back. Um, will yeah. he, behind the scenes, be in charge? And then talk more about um, Lachlan Murdoch and James Murdoch, who, in fact, will ultimately be in charge. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, that's also getting uh, sort of glossed over as well in a lot of the coverage. Um, in the statement where Rupert Murdoch's announcement was made, one of the things that it also simultaneously emphasized was that he still intends to be heavily involved in the day-to-day -day operations of uh, the media properties. And I think when they say that, they also in particular mean Fox News. Um, he goes to the Fox offices significantly more than Lachlan Murdoch does. Lachlan Murdoch mostly operates out of Australia. Um, he calls in, you know, 
out to to engage in in some events, but he doesn't really you know run the place in the same way that Rupert Murdoch has. And according to the statement, um, Rupert Murdoch's still going to be there. So there's going to be a shadow of Murdoch, and I think in some respects the the culture will be sustained in part because his presence. But from a decision making capacity, what this does mean is that at minimum, Lachlan Murdoch is going to have a lot more latitude to be sort of the ultimate and final decision maker, which is something that he shared with Rupert Murdoch up until this point. And that means that he'll he'll be able to sort of set the vision for the strategic investments that the business makes. And I think that's going to be the one difference. But day to day, we're not really going to feel much except for the fact that Lachlan Murdoch has a a tolerance for even more extreme content than than Rupert Murdoch does. Now, of course, it shouldn't be a surprise to many, given that he's 92 years old. But some are saying um, that the reason he stepped down um, so quickly, the surprise announcement, was because he doesn't want to testify in the Smartmatic case. Explain what happened. I mean, you have this corporation that now has to pay nearly $800 million to Dominion and explain what that was about. And now Smartmatic, $2.7 billion. So it's, it's really hard to overstate just how damaging for Fox Corporation um, Rupert Murdoch's deposition was in the Dominion case. Um, it was actually a, a devastating deposition that had consequences not just for the case, but also for the future of his companies. Um, just before the deposition started, Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch were actually going to remerge his companies. Fox Corporation and News Corp were in the process of being remerged. Um, that was something they were undertaking. Um, a few days after his deposition, because it was so disastrous, they could no longer make the case to the shareholders of News Corp that it would be a viable sort of merger. And they actually had to scuttle those plans. And what happened during the deposition, essentially, is that Rupert Murdoch undermine Fox's defense. Um, one of Fox's defenses was that uh, was claiming that the Fox hosts were not advancing and, and, and are making the claims themselves. They were not promoting them. They were simply giving they were simply covering the claims that other people were making. And during his deposition, Rupert Murdoch had repeatedly acknowledged, actually, the Fox hosts were promoting these claims. The Fox hosts were endorsing them. That was his word that totally eliminated one of Fox's most major defenses. And there was a lot of other stuff during the deposition as well. But in part, it it really undermined the case. So from a a legal perspective, there's real value in trying to make the argument in subsequent depositions. Well, he's not in charge anymore, so you might be able to get discovery, but you shouldn't treat him the way you would treat an active decision maker. I think that's going to be a tough argument for them to make, but it does give them an additional leg to stand on. uh, And and I think that's a part of it. I also think the other part of it is that, uh, uh, you know, Things are not great at Fox right now. There's, you know, they are, they've suffered about a 30% loss in their audience ever since Tucker Carlson left. Um, that audience hasn't come back. They don't have the same power and influence that they had. In effect, it's not as fun. Um, this is, you know, Fox and his media properties are as much about profit as they are about power. And as that power starts to wane and diminish, uh, you sort of lose the incentive to sort of, you know, weather all the other slings and arrows that go with, with running this co- corporation. So I think those are the two pieces that sort of led to this motivation. And and it also makes it clear that because it's going to be a tumultuous period, having just one decision maker that can be pointed to, I think, makes it easier for that person to navigate the, the, the you know, the sort of the terrain. And I, I obviously that's that's a reflection of his leadership. He wanted to signal that Lachlan is going to be the one weathering the storms for the year ahead. It might surprise many to hear that Rupert Murdoch hates Donald Trump. 
given the role of Fox when it comes to uh, Trump's run for the presidency, both before and now, explain what that relationship is all about, Angela. Uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch has always thought, you know, Trump was just sort of a creature of tabloids and not somebody that should be taken seriously, that was full of bluster, that was unpredictable and volatile. That's the thing that Rupert Murdoch doesn't like, right, is, is volatility. Uh, and obviously there's some other parts of it. But one of the things that, that Fox News did is they sort of built the demand amongst the Republican base for the types of claims that Trump were then echoed and that made him popular. The Fox News made Trump acceptable to the Republican Party. And Fox News introduced a lot of the lies that Trump then parroted during the 2016 election. So one sort of Rupert Murdoch had a hand in making the Republican Party more extreme. And then on top of that, uh, as Trump started to, you know, when there was that first tussle during the 2016 primaries, where Trump started to criticize Fox for not being supportive of him enough, um, Trump won that fight. He was able to leapfrog Fox News, speak directly to the Fox News audience and get the Fox News audience to kind of pressure Fox to be more supportive and sympathetic to Fox. So Ever since then, there's always been this weird tension where Rupert Murdoch accepted that even if he didn't really like him, he could use him. So in the early days of the Trump administration, Rupert Murdoch spoke to him regularly. In fact, he was trying to pressure Trump uh, into getting, at the time, uh, CNN's parent company to force a spinoff of CNN so that he could make another run to trying to buy it. He was trying to leverage the power of the presidency uh, in order to sort of further advantage his political and his business interests. Um, it's something that Rupert Murdoch always wants. He does this all across the world, by the way. He uses his media properties to sort of identify political people that he could put into the positions as the heads of government, because that then gives him influence and he can get a return on investment. So there's always been this tension. Uh, there's always been this tension there. And I think in the during the in the wake of what we've seen with Dominion, uh, it's true. And some of this came out dur during the intro that ultimately Rupert Murdoch blames Donald Trump for the position that Fox was in. Um, and it, he's wrong about that. It was an active decision by Fox to amplify and help build the case that the election was stolen based on these fabrications and lies. But he's right about one thing. Fox was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, they would experience blowback from their audience if they didn't do more to advance and tout those election lies. Part of that is because of Trump, but the main part of that is because Fox News built these appetites amongst a very large part of our of our country among and their audience that they didn't really have a choice but to continue to feed those appetites with these lies. Angela Carson, uh, Media Matters, has a piece. Um, Lachlan Murdoch's succession leaves him alone at the helm of a global empire. Here's why that's troubling. Um, explain his politics and his brother's politics, James Murdoch. I think the two biggest differences, you know, there's this idea that somehow James Murdoch is, is a liberal. He's not a liberal. Um, Lachlan Murdoch is certainly not a liberal. Lachlan Murdoch is much more a reflection of his father's politics. Um, but they, they differ on a few major things. Um, one is that James Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch differ on climate change. Um, James Murdoch believes that climate change is going to destroy the world, uh, and it requires a response and action, and that as media properties, that you have an obligation to tell the truth about climate change. Lachlan Murdoch does not believe that. He believes that the climate threat is overhyped, uh, and that it is an effort by liberals uh, and elites to exercise control over the general public. Uh, and that is a major difference. The other difference is that Lachlan Murdoch 
wasn't just whether or not he believed the lies about the election. Um, he was tolerant of them. Uh, and in fact, he helped he put he actively helped spread misinformation during the 2020 election uh, by calling into producers and saying, hey, that host is not giving enough credence to these attacks that uh, on the election. You better get them to change their coverage in real time. He had an active hand in, in shifting Fox's direction around that. James uh, James Murdoch would argue that that's that's bad. That's destructive. You shouldn't be doing that. And you know they had other differences around you know politics. So during Black Lives Matter, for example, um, you know James Murdoch thought that there did need to be more discussion around a racial reckoning, whereas Lachlan Murdoch was more in the. Tucker Carlson camp. Um, he sort of softly endorsed white genocide, the notion that white culture is being systematically uh, destroyed and eliminated by by elites. Um, and so there are some differences, but at its core, Lachlan Murdoch is, is, is much more of a conservative. Um, and it, his worldview, though, is a bit more brutal than his dad's. Um, his dad, at his core, is still a believer in building things. Now, these things are instruments of deceit and power and profit, um, but he still be- he, he built, he created uh, news companies and properties and media properties and media outlets. Um, there's a sentimentality that Rupert Murdoch brought to the table that ha- I think, at minimum, grounded wh- how far he was willing to go. Because at his core, he was trying to create businesses. Um, Lachlan Murdoch, in effect, is a, is a bit more of a nihilist, uh, and that means that uh, there's not much of a core there that will tether him. If it serves a short-term interest, he will engage in it, and he doesn't really bring a sentimentality to the businesses that is father did. And what that does mean is that they'll burn brighter and hotter. Angelo, the New York Times reported James Murdoch um, has raised the possibility he would seek to rally his two sisters to vote with him to wrest control of the company away from Lachlan after their father's death. It used to be uh, people talked about um, if Rupert Murdoch dies, right, um, or rather when Rupert Murdoch dies, but it changed to if he ever dies. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's a real thing, by the way. I mean, the way the, the companies are structured, they're owned by a trust. And the trust, uh, Rupert Murdoch exercises total control over the trust while he's alive. Uh, but when he dies, each of his children get an equal vote. Um, and there are four of them. And so uh, really just James has to rally his siblings and Lachlan wouldn't be in control anymore. That's an important thing to consider for what it means for Lachlan's tenure. What it does mean is that he doesn't have a long runway. Um, if you're Lachlan Murdoch and you're in control and you have the reins and you have this massive you know, set of properties and all of these resources to make investments, you know that your time is limited and that the clock is ticking. And so it's in his interest to make as many moves as he wants as fast as possible um, so that uh, he has a chance to do them. Because he does know that right, right around the bend, James is going to try to re- wrestle control of the company away from him. So this succession battle is actually not over. Um, we're basically in the semi finals right now. Uh, but and when Rupert Murdoch passes, there will be an, an, an additional succession battle. I think what Lachlan is hoping is that he can readjust or re-maneuver the company in a way uh, that somehow he, he's able to insulate himself from a succession battle or spin off the things that are most important to him. There was some talk a while ago about spinning off Fox and buying it through a separate company. Uh, so there's a lot of maneuvers that, that remain to be seen. So and me, uh, and that, that's a reality. As we wrap um when you look at News of the World, one of the oldest tabloids in Britain, it closed, Murdoch closed it almost overnight after it was just yeah. a wash in scandal. You have Michael Wolfe, who just wrote a biography of Rupert Murdoch, um, who told Vanity Fair 
speaking about Fox, I think it will uh, cease to exist in the present form. Uh, do you see that possibly happening? I mean, could Fox be sold off, what, to someone like uh, Elon Musk, right? He'll drop F-O and it'll just be X. Yeah, I do think that Fox News in its current form will no longer exist. And we're starting to see that 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 happen. Um, you know, most recently with the first Republican debate, typically Fox is the sole media partner. Uh, and yet they sh- they didn't have streaming rights to it this time. They shared that with an online sort of YouTube alternative called Rumble that the RNC sanctioned. That would have been unheard of in previous elections because there wasn't a counterbalance to Fox. Um, for the last 25 years, Fox News and-, and Rush Limbaugh were the center of gravity amongst the massive right wing media echo chamber. They were the conductor for this course. And right now, the right wing media is is a is a chorus without a conductor. They don't exert the same influence that they had. Their ratings are down. Um, the business fundamentals are changing, and so they don't really have a plan for what happens on the other side of all these changes in consumption habits. The one thing that isn't going to change, and and it really was just determine the speed at which Fox sort of declines, um, is what happens with these cable fights. Um, about seventy percent of Fox's revenue is actually up for grabs right now because they're trying to renew their contracts with all these cable companies. They're trying to get massive increases in what cable companies pay them, if they're successful at doing that, then Fox News will look and feel the same for the, at least the next six years. Um, if they're not as successful, then Fox will start to adjust and, and weaken even faster because they, they, they won't be a profitable company anymore, which would have never been conceivable even six months ago that Fox News would not be profitable. So I, I do agree that, that consumption habits, the changes in the landscape, and for the first time ever, um, they, they're not really sitting at the center of gravity. That that could be worse for all of us, because it depends on who comes in. The right-wing landscape right now is, is bloodthirsty, um, but it also could mean that they never get another conductor. And a right-wing media uh, only is powerful when it functions as an echo chamber. If it doesn't have a conductor, then it's just noise, and you can't really operationalize noise. That's been the real power of Fox, that it was able to operationalize that media apparatus and really create that echo, which you then could reverberate through the rest of the media, through culture, and leverage it for power and change. Angela Carson. I want to thank you for being with us. President of Media Matters speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Next up, President Biden's invited the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to the White House after the two met on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Critics say Biden is now embracing Israel's apartheid system. Stay with us. We Be Friends by War. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
Protesters are planning to gather today outside the United Nations, where Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is scheduled to address the U.N. General Assembly. On Wednesday, President Biden met with Netanyahu on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in their first meeting since Netanyahu returned to office in December as head of the most right-wing government in Israeli history. Biden reportedly invited Netanyahu to the White House for a future meeting. In recent months, the Biden administration's criticized the gutting of the judiciary by Netanyahu's far-right government and its expansion of illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. But the Biden administration continues to send Israel $3.8 billion in annual military funding to help Israel run what many human rights groups describe as an apartheid state. So far this year, Israeli forces have killed at least 240 Palestinians, including six on Tuesday, the day before Biden and Netanyahu met. This is President Biden speaking as their meeting began. We're going to discuss some of the hard issues, and that is upholding democratic values that lie at the heart of our partnership, including uh, checks and balances in our systems and preserving a path to a negotiated two-state solution and uh, ensuring that Iran never, never acquires a nuclear weapon. Because even where we have some differences, my commitment to Israel, as you know, is ironclad. I, uh, I think without Israel, there's not a Jew in the world that's secure. I think Israel is essential. During the meeting, President Biden also pushed for Israel to reach a deal to fully normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. Today's protest against Netanyahu is scheduled for 4 p.m. outside the United Nations. A key organizer of that demonstration is Jewish Voice for Peace. Beth Miller, the political director of JVP Action, spoke to Democracy Now! This morning, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be addressing the United Nations General Assembly. And he's going to be attempting to justify his government's violence and racism against Palestinians. And he's almost certainly going to falsely claim that his government's brutality against Palestinians somehow protects Jews. That is simply not true. So today, New York, the New York City chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace is taking to the streets in front of the UN to protest Netanyahu and Israel's apartheid government. Right now, the Israeli government is demolishing Palestinian homes, throwing Palestinian children into military prisons, locking millions of people in Gaza under military blockade. So we're going to be making it clear that no leaders of this government, including Netanyahu, are welcome in New York City. More importantly, that it's time for the U.S. government to end the flow of $3.8 billion every single year to the Israeli military. We're joined now by two guests, Alex Keynes, a senior reporter for Jewish Currents. His new piece is titled Biden's Legacy Will Be Apartheid. And Yusuf Munayir is a Palestinian-American analyst, head of the Israel-Palestine program at Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Alex Kane, let's begin with you. That title, Biden's Legacy Will Be Apartheid. Um, yet many would say that Biden has been critical of this, what many describe as Israel's most far-right government in its history. Talk about uh, how the significance of this meeting with Netanyahu this week and inviting him to the White House. Thanks, Amy. So the, um, the meeting at the U.N. General Assembly was notable for 
where it was not. It was not at the White House. And that was taken in Israel and the United States as a rebuke of Netanyahu for pursuing a far-right agenda to gut the power of the Israeli judiciary, which Biden is very concerned with because Biden um, sees Israel as a fellow liberal democracy. Um, so the, the, meeting, the fact that the meeting took place at the UN General Assembly rather than at the White House was a sort of symbolic rebuke. And Biden's State Department has issued many, many, many statements of condemnation of Israel's um, plans in the West Bank when they build illegal settlements and legalize outposts that were previously under Israeli law illegal, and uh, as well as um, you know, kill Palestinians, including Palestinian Americans. The State Department has repeatedly told Israel to um, uh, calm down the situation in the West Bank. Um, but the, these, these are merely symbolic rebukes. The Biden administration has refused to even think about conditioning um, U.S. military aid to Israel on respect for Palestinian human rights. They have shielded the country from pressure at the United Nations over its illegal settlements and, have, and have continued to stress the importance of the U.S.-Israel alliance. So we should be clear that these um, that Biden is deeply uncomfortable with this far-right Israeli government because it has an agenda at odds with how Biden conceives of Israel, but um, he continues to support Israel with um, money and diplomatic support. And so when Biden says his support for Israel is ironclad, it basically means that his support for Israel is unconditional, even as it consolidates an apartheid rule uh, in, the, in, in the occupied territories and escalates um, ethnic cleansing processes that are going on right now. And the issue of Saudi Arabia, when Joe Biden ran for president, he said he would make MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, a pariah uh, for um, the assassination of the Washington Post columnist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, among other human rights issues. But now the U.S. pushing for normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Biden believes that the fundamental um, root of the the sort of conflict in the Middle East that Israel is involved with is Arab rejection of Israel as a Jewish state. And so as a result, he's doubling down on Trump-era normalization deals known as the Abraham Accords, in which Israel, um, in exchange for dropping um, plans to declare annexation of the West Bank, uh, Israel normalized ties with the United Arab Emirates, as well as Bahrain and Morocco, um, and so uh, when Biden came in, he, he decided to, to pursue this. And now with Saudi Arabia, he's looking to basically um, bring, uh, bring Israel, Saudi Arabia together with some serious U.S. guarantees of uh, there's talk of a, a U.S. defense treaties with both Saudi Arabia and Israel, which would bind the U.S. to sort of come to the defense of these two repressive countries. And really what, what the Abraham Accords will do, there's a lot of talk of, you know, how this will help uh, the Palestinians, who are, of course, under a brutal military occupation. Um, but what, what Saudi normalization with Israel would do at US, with, with U.S. help would be to further isolate and marginalize Palestinians. And so it's not going to help regional peace. It's just going to further consolidate Israeli apartheid, this time with the blessing of the most important uh, Muslim uh, state in, in the region. Let's bring Yusuf Munayir into this conversation, Palestinian-American, as they met on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Um, that's Biden and Netanyahu. Uh, this was just a day after uh, 
six Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces. Can you talk about the significance of this? That's among about 240 Palestinians who've been killed by Israeli forces so far this year. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Amy. That's that's correct. You know, in, in 2022, last year, uh, the United Nations noted that it was the single deadliest uh, year for Palestinians in the West Bank uh, being killed by the Israeli military uh, in nearly two decades of them keeping track of, of those numbers and um, the pace uh, that we are seeing for 2023 uh, looks to uh, far um, uh, go go over the numbers from the the record setting year um, the the year before. I think you know if we we're to if we we're to describe uh, the Biden administration as in any way critical uh, of uh, the Israeli government and and um, and Netanyahu in particular, we really need to to put that kind of criticism in uh, perspective. Uh, and in the context, the extreme context, which we are seeing on uh, the ground of unprecedented violence against Palestinians on a daily basis, not just uh, being carried out by the Israeli military, which, you know, as you as you noted, has uh, been um, accused by various human rights organizations, Palestinian, Israeli and international human rights organizations of committing the crime of apartheid, uh, but also violence against Palestinians at the hands of Israeli settlers who are running amok in the West Bank, uh, feeling a, a sense of support from an extremist uh, government in ways that they have never uh, felt before uh, and uh, really conducting attacks on Palestinians with a with a, a sense of, of uh, impunity. Um, and, and and all of this is happening alongside, of course, the, this Israeli government um, uh, attempting a massive uh, legislative power grab to ensure that right wing forces in Israel remain in power in Israel for years to come. Um, and so while we've heard some some mild criticism from the Biden administration, particularly around these judicial issues, uh, that um, criticism does not match the. Uh, extreme situation on the ground. Uh, and uh, in fact, it seems completely uh, ignorant of the very dangerous realities. Couple that with the fact that the Biden administration is also doing for Netanyahu things that uh, other administrations have not been willing or able to do before. This American administration is racing towards uh, uh, granting Israel entry into the uh, U.S. visa waiver program, um, something that uh, Israel has sought for many years that the Biden administration seems willing to bend over backwards to accommodate, even if it means accepting the discrimination of Palestinian Americans uh, traveling into and through Israeli-controlled uh, borders. It's also working on providing Netanyahu now with perhaps his biggest political achievement in normalizing ties uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia. When one considers the degree of severity uh, of the situation on the ground, the rampant violence against Palestinians, the way this extreme right-wing government is dedicated to annexation uh, and destroying any possibilities of peace, uh, and then puts that alongside what this administration is actually doing, it's hard to think of this administration as any way critical, but rather providing full-throated support for, for continued apartheid. Do you see a difference in concrete ways between the Biden policy towards Israel and Trump's policy towards Israel? 
You know, in some ways, the Biden administration policy is worse because I think it um, uh, it's more hypocritical. With Trump, with Trump, you had this, uh, you know, uh, ethno-nationalist approach that was at least uh, in harmony uh, with what um, uh, what the Israelis were trying to do and what other right-wing leaders across the world were trying to do. Uh, with the Biden administration, you have language about human rights being at the center of foreign policy, uh, but the reality is completely different. You see this not just with Israel, of course, but with Saudi Arabia, that the administration is is normalizing its relations with uh, after calling uh, you know them a, a pariah a few years ago. You see that as well with India, uh, which has just been um, accused of a, a gruesome act of transnational repression in, in neighboring uh, Canada. Uh, and, and many people have been outspoken and criticizing the human rights violations of the Modi regime in India that, that the Biden administration welcomed uh, with a red carpet here uh, for a state visit earlier this year. So the Biden administration, you hear talk about human rights, you hear talk about democracy, but the reality is is quite the contrary. And I think that hypocrisy is what separates the most uh, from Donald Trump, uh, because, you know, you, you knew what you were getting with Donald Trump, and he was quite honest about it. And with the Biden administration, um, you, you hear talk about democracy, but the reality is that they're supporting apartheid and authoritarianism in many places around the globe. Very quickly, Alex Kane, you're a senior reporter for Jewish Currents. Do you see Jewish public opinion in the United States shifting around Israel and the occupation of the Palestinian territories? Yes, um, particularly amongst young people, but not just young people. People are um, waking up, and particularly now as Netanyahu's um, extremist government puts on display a shocking level of violence. We have um, over a thousand Palestinians that have been displaced this year. Their villages literally wiped off the map. Young American Jews, uh, and I think many other, even not not just young American Jews, um, are, are waking up and seeing this. But um, that is not being reflected in the uh, organized American Jewish establishment, which continues to um, lobby the U.S. government to to, to support Israel as it does, so the the sort of there's a there's a there's a real gap between Jewish public opinion and what the uh, organized American Jewish community is telling uh, the Biden administration to do. Alex Kane, want to thank you for being with us, senior reporter for Jewish Currents. We'll link to your piece. Biden's legacy will be apartheid. And Yusuf Munayir, Palestinian American analyst, head of the Israel Palestine program at Arab Center, Washington D.C. Next up, we speak with California Congressmember Ro Khanna as Republican infighting could soon lead to a government shutdown and more. Back in 30 seconds. Children of the Grave by Black Sabbath. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Congress in the shutdown showdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's accused right-wing extremists in the House of wanting to, quote, burn the whole place down 
after a handful of Republican hardliners rebelled and blocked a Pentagon spending bill. It's become increasingly likely the federal government will shut down October 1st because fighting within the Republican caucus has prevented McCarthy from being able to pass any spending bills. On Thursday, McCarthy sent lawmakers home for an extended weekend. This is House Speaker McCarthy talking to reporters Thursday after the latest setback. It's frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you've got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. That doesn't work. We're joined now from the Kenan Rotunda in Washington, D.C., by Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna to talk about the possible shutdown, as well as the UAW strike and other issues. Uh, Congressmember, welcome back to Democracy Now! So what does this shutdown mean if it were to happen? And talk about whether you think House Speaker McCarthy is going to um, lose his position as Speaker. Amy, it's chaos here. The sad thing is it has a real impact on Americans. If you need a social security check or you need something from the government, now it's a 35-minute wait time. It could be hours wait time to get anyone if the government shuts down. Our military would not get paid if we cannot pass a defense appropriation bill. Millions of workers in the federal government wouldn't get paid. Now, they may get back pay, but if someone is living on fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, how are they going to pay rent? How are they going to pay mortgage? So it is highly irresponsible. Just this morning, we finally have one Republican, Mike Lawler, saying that he may side with Democrats, sign a discharge petition to get the government funded. Uh, if we can get five or six reasonable Republicans to do that, we can avert this crisis. But McCarthy has just failed to do the most basic function of a Speaker of the House, keep the government open and functioning. What does it mean when the government shuts down? Explain wh who gets affected right off October 1st. Well, all the federal workers get affected, as I pointed out. The military personnel would not be paid. You would not get pay if you're a federal employee. Uh, this will impact the level of services that people get at the parks. It'll impact the level of services they get if you need a social security check or you need a government assistance for anything. It will impact our immigration services at a time where the Republicans are screaming, saying that we are not processing immigration cases fast enough. This would slow that down. So it would just be a total self-inflicted injury that would make life much harder for ordinary Americans, particularly for people who serve in our military or in the federal government in any way. You talk about the military. You also have what's going on in the Senate right now um, with uh, the Alabama former football coach, now Senator um, uh, Tuberville, stopping the uh, confirmation of top military officials. Uh, explain how that works in coupling with the surprise that House Republican members are no longer supporting funding the military. Well, look, to the extent that there are some House Republicans who are against the bloated Pentagon budget of a trillion dollars, uh, I welcome that. I mean, I uh, interviewed or questioned Lockheed Martin CEO about 40 percent profits on the Patriot system. And we definitely need accountability and strategic uh, cuts in the defense contractor profits. 
The problem is you can't just stop funding uh, our military and stop paying the troops. And that's what the extreme Republicans are for. And you can't do what uh, Senator Tuberville is doing, which is hold up the appointment of senior military uh, leaders and officials. That is hurting the morale of the military. And if there were ever a conflict, it hurts our readiness. It's highly irresponsible. And to my knowledge, no senator has ever done that before, holding up senior military appointments. It shows the need for systematic reform of the United States Senate. Congressmember Khanna, um, let's talk about the historic United Auto Workers strike, which just marked a week since some, well, close to 13,000 auto workers walked off the job. Ahead of the strike, you co-authored an op-ed in The Guardian with UAW President Sean Fain, where you wrote, quote, the climate crisis and income inequality are the two greatest challenges facing our generation. This is a pivotal moment for the American economy and the workers that make it run. Corporations are pushing hard to use this moment to expand their power. We're mobilizing for a new model that puts working people, climate justice and human rights before profit. You and the UAW president, Sean Fain, wrote. If you can talk about this and President, former President Trump now heading to Detroit, he's attacking the UAW leadership, but saying he's supporting the workers, but going to try to drive a, um, a sort of wedge around the issue of electric vehicles and saying this kind of climate change approach will um, will make workers lose jobs. Amy, Sean Fain is an American hero. He's not just speaking out for UAW. He's speaking out for what the working class has wanted for the last four decades. That's what I heard on the picket lines when I was out with UAW members in Wayne, Michigan and in Toledo, Ohio. I mean, what Sean is saying is the CEOs are making $30 million, $300 to one, the median worker wage. That is up from 20 to one in the 1960s. These big three auto companies are making $21 billion in profits. They are taking that money and putting $5 billion in buying their own stock to enrich their shareholders. And yet for workers, many of them are not whole from the cuts they had in 2008, where they voluntarily agreed to reduce their salaries because of the Great Recession. They still have not been made whole for that. It is wrong. It's a symptom of the gross income inequality in this country. And Sean Fain is finally standing up to it. He's going to win. We, the, there is no two sides to this. They should agree to the increases that Sean Fain wants. In many cases, that's just going to bring people up to the 2008 levels if they're temporary or part-time workers. And I believe Donald Trump is just demagoguing the issue. His view that we should not have electric vehicles means that all those electric vehicles would be produced in China. Of course, we want to make sure that those electric vehicles are produced in the United States, not in China. And we want to make sure that those jobs are good union jobs. That's what Sean Fain and UAW are fighting for. Hakeem Jeffries walked the picket line. Do you think President Biden should? Uh, do, what do you feel about your colleague, Congressmember Debbie Dingell, who represents the Ford, um, uh, the workers at the Ford plant um, that is on strike, uh, saying that Biden should keep his distance? Well, I thought Hakeem did a great job and Catherine Clark coming out. I'd love to see other members of Congress go out to the picket line. Uh, it would be good for President Biden uh, to come out either to a union hall. He could go out to UAW Local 900 uh, or to a picket line. I know the logistics are hard. I think what Congresswoman Debbie Dingell meant is that the president and his team shouldn't 
intervene uh, in the negotiations. The UAW has the upper hand. We should uh, strengthen that hand and side with them and not try to preempt their negotiation uh, in having a deal that doesn't get what the workers really need. Congressmember Khanna, you serve as co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on India and Indian Americans. Can you talk about this growing dispute between Canada and India after the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly accused Narendra Modi and the Indian government of assassinating a Canadian Sikh leader shot dead outside his temple in June? A Canadian officials told AP Trudeau's claim was based in part on surveillance of Indian diplomats inside Canada collected by Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance. Can you respond to the allegation against Modi? Well, there are, of course, very serious allegations, and I echo what Jake Sullivan and our State Department have said, that the United States needs to cooperate in, uh, in a transparent investigation, and we expect a transparent investigation, and then uh, whoever the perpetrators are to be brought to justice. Uh, but there has to be full transparency, and there has to be all the facts that come out. And obviously, they're very serious uh, allegations. And I do think that Jake Sullivan and the State we Department have to leave it are there, taking it seriously. California Congressmember Rokana, we thank you so much. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.